Welcome to the Small Machine Talks, a conversation about literature and art, about duende and queerness and coping and tea, border blur and misfits and community, secret places, ragged edges. Angel House Press. I'm your host, Amanda Earl. Welcome to the Small Machine Talks. This is episode 72, and I'm here today with Francis Boyle. Hi, Francis. Hey, Amanda. How are you? I am great. I'm very happy to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for being on the show. It's, it's actually December 17th, so we're, we're getting close to the holidays for a lot of people, and uh, I'm not exactly sure when it will be posted, but uh, it'll be around that time. So for all those uh, celebrating or trying to find moments of joy, uh, here's, uh, I, hope you, I hope you manage to do so. I'm going to start by reading uh, Francis's bio. So Francis Boyle has practiced corporate law, volunteered for a number of feminist arts and international development organizations, and served as an associate poetry editor for Arc Poetry Magazine. She is the author of a novella, Tower, which came out in 2018, two books of poetry, This White Nest from 2019, and Light Carved pa- Passages from 2014, and several chapbooks. Seeking Shade is her first collection of short fiction. She lives in Ottawa with her partner and a large standard poodle who believes he is a laptop. La- lap dog, not a laptop. That would be that would be even weirder than thinking he Very was weird. a lap. What what's the dog's name? His name is Bert. Birch? Bert. B E R T. Okay, like Ernie and Bert. Okay, that's. Yeah. I always I find I always like knowing about people's uh, people's uh, pet names. I think pets are a great reason to name things. You know, I, I like names of things. So we're gonna include. I'll include in the show notes your website, which is francisboyle.com. Also a link to Seeking Shade, uh, which was published by Porcupine's Quill, and Tower, which was published by Fish Gotta Swim. So I'll make sure I'll include all those. I loved reading uh, Seeking Shade, and one of the reasons why many of the re- I, there were a lot of reasons why I love the book, but. Um, for me, of course, all the references to music. Um, so music in the stories provides a hint to the time period, but also gives us insight about the characters. Not only do you mention specific music, but you use musical language quite a bit. For example, in Dance Me, the High Park frogs were chiming, and Esty felt in the sound of the rhythm of the big band music they left behind, is an example, or the quavering voice of the violin over the water. And then uh, later on, there was rhythm here and a dance they could practice together. And then in um, Adjustment, another story, the lyric pull of fire and also um, learn the rhythm of liking someone. And in Cold Air Return, we have the high winding music. And in a beach on Corfu, Murray makes circus music with his mouth, which was quite funny. And in Ever Poppy, we have the singing cable. So it's everywhere, even in the stories where where you're not mentioning specifically uh, songs. But what I did is, um, and I'll share this with uh, on the show notes, is I made a playlist which includes the music that you referred to directly and I, I, on Spotify. And I've also included songs and composition where there's no direct reference, just a band name or a song has been described. And I've tried to include some of the music from films mentioned in the book as well, because you also include a lot of film. You include art, music, poetry, like all kinds of creative work in there, which is really fantastic. So what I did to create a list of questions is I put the playlist on, 
on shuffle in order to determine what we would talk about. This is the sort of thing I like to do to kind of mix things up. There's a kind of beauty and disorder, I think, that I find. I don't know. But um, so I guess what I what I asked Francis to do is for each song that uh, mentioned, I asked for the context of the story and anything that you want to talk about related to the song and the story. Uh, maybe we'll talk about other things as well. But hopefully we will. So the first one that came up in the shuffle was the song Maps by Yeah, Yeah, Yes. Um, so if you could, I guess the story is from Cold Air Return, and the, the context is she, which is Jackie, the, the main character in the story, turns up the volume and sings along with Karen Ode to Maps. So, and I, I imagine her singing, wait, they don't love you like I love you. And this, so if you could provide the context and talk about the story, that would be great. Oh, sure. Well, before I do, I want to thank you for making this amazing playlist, Amanda. It's, well, it's, um, I really, really love it. And I'm, I'm just so grateful for all the thought and, and effort and the care that you put into it. Uh, so a little, snippet, a little snippet you just read is at the beginning of the story when my main character, Jackie, is in the apartment of her ex, Matt, and she's been somewhat guilted into coming in to clear out his place while he is away. Uh, she's just cranked up the stereo as she starts cleaning. Uh, music was one of the really big things that they shared in the relationship. And at this point in the story, Jackie is ambivalent about whether she's actually over him and she's belting out the chorus. Yes, they don't love you like I love you. <laughs> um, the other main character, Carol, who was married to Matt before he was with Jackie, is about to arrive, and the story proceeds from there. Yeah, it's great. I, I, I absolutely. This was such a great story. It now, am I remembering correctly? Was it set in Kitchener, Waterloo, or is that just me imagining? Uh, I don't know. I don't know that I named it, but I was thinking Waterloo. Yeah. Yeah, it's because of the Shriners that I I, I lived in Waterloo myself because I went to U of Waterloo for my um. Uh, bachelors and masters and I remember the Shriners were all seem to be always there I don't know what that is as soon as I saw the Shriners I thought this is in this is in Waterloo okay so feels familiar so you mentioned Carol and Jackie isn't particularly fond of Carol at the start of the story but they have to work together and perhaps they even bond over their mutual issues with Matt and uh, Carol in the, well I was spoiler alert for those who haven't read the story yet she ends up helping Jackie so um, I, I was interested by this and also many of the stories in the book do address the relationship between women and friendships like for instance another story of beach on corfu which is about young girls and then long-term lease which is about grown-ups grown-up women and, and can you talk about your writing and the friendships you've developed as a writer especially through the workshops courses and residencies you've uh, taken yeah um when i was a kid i was you know i was a fairly lonely kid and writing was a way of um you know, getting around some of the loneliness. But as an adult, uh, writing has been a source of both really close friendships and nourishing connections with people in Ottawa and around around the country who I'm not necessarily really close friends with. But I but I feel like we're part of the part of the same uh, web. My uh, very oldest friend, when I moved away from Vancouver to move to Ottawa, she gave me a copy of The Artist's Way, and that and so that act of friendship oh, yeah. uh, spurred me to get back to my writing in a, in a serious way. Uh, and my first writing group where I was working on fiction yielded some strong friendships there and various other groups over the years. But the longest running and the most supportive group by far is the Ruby Tuesday Collective. We've been meeting, we keep sort of trying to figure out when our actual start date was, but it's well over 15 years by now. Wow. And uh, when we started out, uh, we were all very modestly published, if published at all. And um, now 
uh, everyone has had many poems uh, appear, magazines, and almost all of us have either a book or a chapbook, and, and we've just sort of um, critiqued solidly, but supported and encouraged and, and cheered each other as, as, as we went, uh, went along. Uh, we've all, we meet every week, right? So we've, we've seen oh. each other through um, teenage years of our kids and through illnesses and through various family crises. And um, my, the dedication to my book is to my sister, Janet, my real life sister, but also to my right. chosen sisters. And, and there are several, several among, among the Ruby Tuesday group. And then going away to writing retreats and residencies, that's also wielded some, some longer term friendships, people who I don't necessarily see very often, but um, you know, like um, uh, Janet Barkhouse, who I, who I met at, um, at when I was at Banff, uh, when I was looking to do some readings in, in Nova Scotia and New Brunswick, she had a new book out as well. So we were able to, to join together and, and read together on, uh, and so, so that, um, that was the really special thing. And same with other people who I've connected with. And uh, it feels, I was sort of thinking it's like, um, you know, some, some kind of high tension wires that, in a web that uh, just, uh, you know, you see somebody post about a success on Twitter or see a poem in a magazine or see that they've got a book out and it's just sort of sends a, a wonderful vibration of, uh, of connection and, and joy. Um, and, you know, it's, the linkage is really miraculous to me how strong the linkages can be and social media is sometimes toxic, but it's also really phenomenal for sharing news and, and celebrating stuff. So I'm, I'm really grateful to have this in my life. That's great. Yeah. And the Ruby Tuesdays, it's amazing. Every week you meet that's, and I guess during the pandemic, you must be meeting virtually. Yes. Right. Sure. That, that's amazing. Yeah. I, and one thing I've noticed, uh, uh, your, I guess it must be a fiction writers group. Um, sometimes at, like, say, the Writers Festival, so there's a group of you who come together and, and oh. sit together. And that's nice, too, that, that you can talk about things and, uh, and, and do it in that way. And there's certainly a, a strong thread of friendship throughout, throughout these stories as well. So the next, the next uh, one that comes up um, is uh, Moonchild, King Crimson in the Court of the Crimson, Crimson King from 1969. Now, this one I, I picked because you don't, we'll, we'll, we'll give the context, but it's from the story Claims. And the quote is, Anita was passionate in defending her top 40 station against what she called their manure stomping music. I have told them about a late night DJ who played album sides, Zeppelin, King Crimson, but could hardly get a word in. And that's from the story Claims. So, yeah, I, I picked that one myself because... Um, there, you don't refer specifically to any song of King Crimson's here. I tried to figure out if there was a whole al album side that I, I could imagine, but uh, I couldn't quite uh, think it think about. But I, so I chose the song Moonchild because it feels like it represents the main character's personality, openness to exploration, and also many of the other young women main characters in the book as well. It, it, that Moonchild sort of bohemian wild child kind of character. Can you can you give us the context and more story? Uh, more information about the story? Yeah, well, you mentioned exploration. Exploration is right here. I put my my character, Helen, who's just graduated high school in a situation way out of her comfort zone. Uh, she's in an office job as a file clerk where she has to confront some of her assumptions about herself and her place in the world uh, while her, her girlfriends are off um, at, at university. Um, I didn't 
have a political intent in writing the story, but it's turned out to be probably the most political piece I've, I've written. And I think it's the only thing I've ever published with a content warning for, uh, for uh, racist uh, attitudes and language. So it's about racism and class, classism and how white people can be, uh, can be and often are complicit in racism, even if they have good intentions. So Helen is in this office job uh, she feels like a fish out of water with uh, the uh, slightly older uh, young women and, and uh, their interests. And despite never met, having met a black person, she thinks that she is not racist like the, the other girls in the office. Uh, yet the way she reacts to indigenous people uh, clearly shows that she's bought into the systemic racism that's part of the air she breathes. She talks about an indigenous girl she'd been at school with um, yeah. as nice enough uh, but she never got to know her, even though she was her lab partner. And then she also leaps to an assumption that an Indigenous man who's away from his family must be, um, you know, on Skid Row or, or maybe in jail when he's actually away at a, at a, a college course somewhere. Uh, so I really wanted to make sure I avoided any white saviorism um, or for Helen to become woke, as if, you know, as if that term was in use in the 1970s. But I wanted her to have just the first stirrings of awareness that she may not be as enlightened as she uh, she thinks she is. So I've played that out with, um, uh, you know, a couple of reactions to some news about one of the characters in the story and her uh, her reaction to uh, to the to the office girls. So. Right. Yeah, that was. Yeah, I, I as. Yeah. So here she's struggling with the casual racism of her co-workers and also in fairy tales for survivors, you include Hafni from Bosnia and tales of abuse and immigration issues and Cecile from Haiti. And you've even got some phrases in Creole. So yeah, what are your thoughts about writing as a white woman, a Western white woman and writing about diversity and press characters? I think you do a good job here of, of, um, of dealing with the issues and it's not, it's, it's good because it's uncomfortable to deal with, but uh, you know, it's important to get these issues out there and you did it well in the story. So what, what are your thoughts about, like you said, this is your first, first story of this nature that you've written and published. So. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, I mean, it's definitely, uh, you know, I had my, my heart in my throat for sure when I was putting it out, but I did feel it was really, really important. I, you know, I'm a, I'm a white woman and a settler and that's the perspective uh, I'm starting from. And I'm, pretty darn sure I'd never write a story from the, the, in the voice of a, um, a minority or a, a disadvantaged character. Uh, certainly not in the voice of somebody who's BIPOC, but you know, that's what the own voices discussions are all about. And if I were ever to have sort of a major secondary character who was, I'd, I'd probably look to, to hiring a sensitivity reader. But on the other hand, if uh, white people only write about yeah. people who look like ourselves and the world is kind of different than, uh, than, than the real world. So I think it's important to include diverse characters and be, you know, the key is just to be really respectful while doing so. Yeah, and that's the thing, like they, they because you you run the risk of erasure, right? If you don't, if you don't do that. I, I have I there's a, a wonderful book that just came out published by Humankind Press in the States. And I'll, I'll put the link up. It's called Musing in the Margins, Essays on Craft. And it's edited by Audrey T. Carroll. And it, it examines the influence of culture identity on the craft of fic fiction. It's, it's a great book. Uh, one of the things that uh, the editor mentions from the start is how uh, even books on craft, a lot of them are from the white 
male perspective. And another another um, writer talks about the white male as a sort of objective, uh, this neutral. Like they see, we see the world through this. It's supposedly a, a, a neutral point of view. Of course, it's not a neutral point of view. It's from a dominant culture. So um, the first um, essay, uh, I wish I could remember the name of the writer. I think it's uh, Cooper. I think I think their first name is Cooper. But uh, talks about how um, they're giving. Um, I guess. Uh, um, they're doing a helping a, another a writer with their work. They're an editor and they're they're giving some advice. And the writer is a white male who is worried about writing from the perspective of other of other groups, other other. And the um, advice is well, you, you know, first of all, the fact that you're ask, asking the question is good. And then there's a lot of advice about how to do that. And and the, you can write from other points of view as long as you do the things that you've suggested and there's a whole list of great ideas about you know how you can make um how you can write um diverse characters don't make them like give them a full range of characteristics and things like that it's something in my in my novel that is not that i barely worked on but in my mind i have five different characters and a, and a few of them are like there's a there's a white character but there's a few different characters and something i know i will have to do a lot of research for if i ever actually work on the novel so yeah that's that's good yeah but anyway it's a great story and also i i wasn't that familiar with king crimson so i was i kind of enjoyed listening to that album and i listened to uh, more as well so uh, that was fun the next song that came up was body and soul uh, and the recorded the one i have on this um, the playlist is the one re recorded in 1939 Coleman hawkins so um so this is from the story dance me so i'll just read the little quote here the hotel was full the dance floors crowded even though there were still skims of ice floating on the lake body and soul glenn miller's blueberry hill Soldiers everywhere and girls in booze, bodies pressed. Can you talk about the context of the story? Uh, for sure. Uh, the story uh, follows the young life of a girl and woman uh, growing up in Toronto from the late 20s through World War II and ends in Vancouver in the early 1950s. And dance, given the title, not surprisingly, is the uh, through line in the story. Um, I based it very, very loosely on things my mother told me about, uh, you know, that time in her life, the dance halls and the traveling to the resorts on the weekend and military men having their last parties before going overseas and stuff like that. Uh, so I created the character of SD uh, and supplemented, you know, the very skimpy information I had from my mom with lots of imagination creating possible romantic relationships for SD and, uh, and doing, um, doing some research as well. Um, so yeah, so it follows, follows her life and her music and the dancing. Yeah, it, it was great to read that. And, and um, so I'm curious about, we're talking about music. What's your, what's your own, can you talk a little bit about your own relationship to music? I know you're like me, I know you like music a lot. And obviously from this book, you can really tell that as well. Can you talk about music in your life? And yeah, um, I I love music and um, and I love to sing. Though I've never played an instrument and done much more than singing in a in a choir like way way back when. Um, I sing to my dog. Uh, he appreciates it more <laughs> than my children did when they were young. Uh, and I very frequently have music. I'll you know, have a song, sort of a random set, sign out fire, and a song will be will be stuck in my head for a while as I walk around or. Um, do housework and, and you know sort of I feel those rhythms I guess in a way yeah uh, that makes sense I yeah. get that 
Yeah. You do that too? Yeah. Well, I have, um, I have this thing where I, I can, I can sort of play the guitar. I, I took lessons years ago, but um, I'm not that good at it because I don't practice, but I, I write songs and it's be partially because I hear music in white noise. So like the vacuum cleaner or um, the washing machine and just lights, like I can hear melodies already. So I feel the rhythms of what I, I really resonated with that. Yeah, that's what, especially. That makes a lot of sense to me. That's sort of what I do. And, um, but in terms of, you know, sort of music, music, I, I used to listen to records a lot back when there were records. Um, Singer songwriters like Joni Mitchell and Farron were like, very sustaining and almost life-saving at different points in my life and listening to albums uh, was a constant through my 20s and into my 30s and then somehow over the years I, I have less recorded music going on it may be that we have CBC on all the time yeah. in the house um, and uh, and I don't like having things in my ears so I and I you know I like to have silence when I'm when I'm reading or writing so the main time I listen to music these days tends to be when I'm driving around in my car. It's like my own little, mm -hmm. little sound booth. Uh, and then live music. I, I miss live music terribly. You know, the, uh, right. the folk festival, the way, the way it used to be was, was just, uh, you know, sort of filled the wellsprings every, uh, every summer. And, um, you know, things at the NAC and, and, and elsewhere were, were just, were just so important. And I really miss that in the current, um, current climate. Um, in terms of importance of music, I'm just going to hark back to, uh, to Cold Air Return for, for just a uh, couple of seconds. And I mentioned my younger brother, Peter. Uh, he was somebody who was absolutely passionate about music and he was a musician himself. He didn't have any formal training, but he wrote the lyrics for his band and was very, very involved in, in, in music with his writing partner. So uh, in Cold Air Return, um, Matt's musical tastes and his class obsession, clash mm -hmm. obsession, and even his apartment, uh, though definitely not his character, were, were based on Peter. So I wanted, I wanted that in there as, yeah. a, as a tribute to, you know, to him and to somebody who was uh, steeped in music his whole life. Yeah, that was great. I, I know uh, when I was when I was growing up as a kid, my sister is ten years older than me, so she and she lived in uh, Yorkville when it was still uh, kind of the old um, villa. You know, it was kind of an old Bohemian place, and she used to take me to. She would uh, pick me up from our little town up north, about an hour's from Toronto, and we'd get in the in the we hitchhike to Toronto. Already a bad idea. I was like eight. And we'd go to the Mariposa Folk Festival on okay. Center Island, and or, I think they changed their name. So I also like I had that sort of um, as a young person. And she was dating at one point a guy who had his own show on the CBC, and he was a singer as well. He was terrible. I'm sorry if you're listening there, but I won't say your name. I doubt you are. But <laughs> yeah, so I, I was exposed to a lot of those early sort of and and going hanging around with the old Yorkville and with musicians and stuff like that. So I developed that same sort of love from an early age. And I grew up in a house that was always, a, my, my father was always singing. So yeah, sort of a similar in the way. And yeah, well, that's good. That that's kind of a tribute to your brother as well. So that's, that's good. Um, I was interested about the, 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 this, for some reason in my mind, these two link together, but they probably don't really, um, I know you wrote the stories at different times, like, so like over the years, like they're not all, they weren't all written at once because <laughs> we're not, we're not 
able to necessarily do that. Maybe there's someone who writes that way. I don't know. But uh, for short fiction. But um, did, do you have a process of when you were just putting the stories together of editing the whole thing as a collection and trying to make some links or did that sort of? Um, well, I, I, you know, the, as you said, some of the stories were, were very, very old and some of them, yeah. the, the first drafts go back you know, more than years, they go back decades. And so, uh, you know, so they all, uh, when I was putting it together as a, as a collection, I, I really went through and revised everything fairly heavily. And then um, when I got the book accepted by Porcupine's Quill, I got to work with a phenomenal editor there, uh, Stephanie Small, and she was just amazing to work, uh, work with. Um, we were talking about claims a minute ago and she, she really helped me navigate the, the fine line uh, in making my character not holier than thou as she dealt yeah. with the, the racism of her colleagues um, uh, and to draw out the complicity. So her editing suggestions were specific, but she gave me scope to, to do it my own way and uh, uh, that made most sense to me and consistent with my style and my approach. And then uh, from there, another Porcupine's Quill editor, uh, Chandra Wollaber did the copy editor uh, edits and publisher Elke Inkster provided even more comments and sort of consistency points at the end. Uh, so it was, you know, that editing process was really, really rewarding and sort of layered on to the work I had done with stories, which some of which had been workshopped to death over right. the groups over, over the years. So it made it all very, uh, very cohesive and, and, and come together uh, perfectly, yeah, perfectly well, shall I say, to my satisfaction in, in the mm -hmm. end. And that was, you know, I also had a really wonderful editing experience with um, my novella with Tower. The, um, Teresa Kishkan and Anique C at Fish Got a Swim Editions were just so lovely to work with. And it was the same. It was a very, felt very much like a reciprocal process as I was, as I was working with them. Because... So, so I've been lucky with my editors for sure. That's great. And also, I, I, I would have we would have talked about Tower, which is another. I love that book as well. As I as I said to you, it's really a good. Um, we'll talk about um, characters a bit later, but but yeah, Tower is wonderful. I was looking around for it because I wanted to talk about it, and I cannot find it. Like, where is it? I, somewhere in somewhere in on the shelves. I don't know where. It should be in the living room, but I can't find it. Uh, so then uh, this story, Dance Me, of course, there, you, you mentioned you, had, you did imagination, but also some research. And numerous others contain very specific details to references to places, historical context. Can you talk about how you research for this story and perhaps also Rest Cure, which also takes place in the past as well? Yeah, these, you know, these are two historical fiction and your early 20th yeah. century stories the the two the, the only two i mean i guess the 1970s are pretty historical now as well right. in, my, so. in my living memory so it uh, so uh, it uh, doesn't feel the same so we were alive so <laughs> for dance me uh the research consisted of a lot of reading um much of it on the internet uh looking at old photos just Photos and old catalogs sort of triggered a lot of sort of visual visual imagery. Um, mm -hmm. you know, so I did a lot of reading in the, and saw pictures about Toronto in the second quarter of the 20th century and about you know, the World War II home front and about the dance halls. I found a, a great book called uh, Let's Dance, Dance Halls and Summer Dance Pavilions. And I browsed through that and a PhD thesis I found online about uh, the uh, resorts in the Muskokas. 
So, um, the, you know, sort of that real information supplemented the, uh, the, the, some of the stories that my mom had told me. And then for atmosphere, um, a lot of times, in addition to, to the, the real life stuff, I looked to some fiction. And I'm thinking in particular of a young adult novel by Janet McNaughton called To Dance at the Palais Royale. That, uh, that I read, and I, you know, I don't even know if I reread it when I was uh, when I was writing Dance Me, but it was just uh, you know just sort of the the flavor of it and the feel of it uh, really kind of informed how I um, uh, what how I how I thought SC might have uh, might have felt through through at that time. And uh, Rest Cure also started uh, you know based on some skimpy family stories. Um, so for it, I read a lot about uh, you know, tuberculosis epidemics, about TB sanatoriums or sanatoria. And I went to visit the one in St. Agath, uh, that's the model for the one in the story. Um, I didn't get inside, it's a hospital admin building now, I was there on a weekend. So I could just walk around outside and peek in the windows, but it did give me a feel for the landscape and, and a bit of the yeah. atmosphere. And then I guess the only other story that had any amount of research with shards where I learned a lot about the biliary system and what my right. you know, diagnosis might possibly be. Do you, one, one of the things that I struggle with in this, in this novel that is not being written, there should be a name for, I call my novel not in progress is, is how do you know, like, are you, when you're researching, are you actively or passively reading? Like, I don't know. My problem is I don't know when and how to stop reading stuff about like, for instance, uh, I have, um, this um, part of the the novel takes place in the in the 70s with the beginning of the punk era in England and also elsewhere. But um, so I have a lot of books on this and it's great. And I'm, I'm specifically interested in, in the women. But, um, you know, I, I, I find my problem is I just don't know where to stop reading. And, you know, like I, I have certain things I want. Like, so I have like a draft that says, um, you know, the, the character put on this record by, I'm like, okay, what was, and I have like a list of songs that are the music that came out in that time and stuff that I could, you know, so I don't get the wrong era and some, but it's just, it's hard to know for me when to actually stop researching. Like, and, and, you know, I could read forever. Like that's yeah. Like, yeah, I mean, that, that makes total sense to me. I mean, and, and uh, just sort of rabbit holes upon rabbit holes. And I think yeah. I'm, I think I'm making notes of stuff that uh, that I'm going to use, and then I'll get to a point in the story, and it's like that. Well, that information was somewhere that I was looking at, but I didn't make a note of it, and you know, so so then I sort of have to go back down the rabbit hole again, and uh, sometimes don't find it. So, so it's um, I, I try and do a combination of sort of like writing it in in a in a loose way. Um, mm -hmm. And not not pausing every time I need a bit of information to to insert it, and you know, and just sort of like try and soak up a lot of a lot of information with which I'd never retain, but <laughs> but it may be there subliminally somehow, and uh, see see what comes out, and then go back afterwards to to make sure that there's things I haven't gotten gotten off. So it's so it's a bit of a to and to and fro. Yeah. Do you, did you take any kind of a workshop or um, um, anything about research in your in your various uh, um, residencies and things that you or? No, no. That would I don't, be a good. It would, it would be the thing. Yeah. I mean, I did 
legal research when I was working, of course, right. but that's pretty darn different. <laughs> yeah, so. Maybe, but I mean, some of the habits might feel like, you know, at that point, you do have to stop at a certain point and get on with the job, right? You find yeah. what you need. I think there must be something, I think there must be something about active research. I heard, um, I went um, about making, like, writing the first draft and writing it loose. I um. I, I can't remember where it was, something I was listening to Ian Rankin, maybe it was at the Writers' Festival or maybe on the CBC All in a Day when he was talking to Alan Neal at one point. He said that he there was one book where he wrote the first draft not knowing who did it till the end. Like he didn't know either. So can you imagine? Well, Rhonda Douglas, uh, our Ottawa author <laughs> friend, is writing a mystery novel where she, maybe this shouldn't go on the air, but she doesn't know <laughs> who did it yet either. It's it's interesting to me, like, I guess, I don't know, my, my ways of writing poetry are a little, like, I'm always with poetry, I expect everything to be unexpected. I don't know why with fiction, I think before I have to be more, uh, like, knowledgeable about what you know, because I, I mean, I can some people always say, well, just start writing and then and then, you know, just keep going. And just my problem with that is I can write nonsense for days like that doesn't work for me. You know, like I, I have to have some kind of an outline or something. But for poetry, like I have something in my mind, but it's not how I, I, I don't worry. I don't have the same expectation of like um, I can blurt out all kinds of things as a poem and then just take it away later. I don't know why I don't have the same attitude towards fiction. Maybe because it's a little longer. I don't know. <laughs> Quite a bit longer. And if you go down yeah. too, too long a detour, a dead end and turns out to be a dead end, then you, you know, yeah. you, know, you I, necessarily learn something in the process. It's just very time consuming, I guess. That's it. It's just, and I'm also a little, I'm lazy about right. Cause I mean, I, I don't know. I find it sort of dull sometimes to sit and write like long, descriptions of things like uh, I, I like writing dialogue like I notice I have like in my my draft early drafts of various things fiction I've written I have lots and lots of dialogue I've gotten better at writing dialogue over the years but um, I got some good advice about writing dialogue which was basically just listen listen basically listen to people talking what do they reveal when they talk they don't they don't say I'm a 25-year-old farmer from <laughs> Oshawa, you know, or whatever. They, they actually, they reveal little details. Yeah. And one good thing to do, too, is listening in on people's cell phone conversations because you're only hearing one side. And how much do you learn about the other person through what the person reveals? So I, I, I find that to be quite helpful. Yeah. I do love dialogue. Yeah, and it is, you know, one, one thing that's always really tricky is if you've got a first-person narrator, how do you get any sense of their physical appearance? Uh, yeah. You know, apart from the horrible old trope of having them, uh, you know, brush their brown hair and look into their blue eyes as if <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> you know? It's just like, why is that relevant, you know, like, that's not the way we think. The next, um, the next, uh, in the, in the, on the playlist, the next song that came up was As Time Goes By, which is, um, and the one I have is by uh, Dooley Wilson, which is from the Casablanca album from 1942. I was able to find that on Spotify, which was kind of cool. So this is from the story Nookie. And the quote is, walking the few remaining blocks, she didn't think about how Ingrid Bergman hadn't glanced back at Bogart as she walked toward the, that airplane at the end of Casablanca, but how about how wet and how cold her feet were getting, which is great. So could you talk about the context of um, this story? Uh, yeah, this story is about uh, um, an affair uh, between uh, two uh, colleagues at, at, uh, at work uh, with an age difference between them. Uh, the uh, young woman is in um, a marriage that is 
not destined to succeed. And so she um, turns what might have been a one night stand and an awkward work situation into an affair that she colors through her rose colored glasses uh, of uh, movie, movie affairs turning this rather unlikely um, older guy into a romantic figure in, in, in her own mind. And um, it dips forward into time a, couple, a, little, a little bit in one spot, but it, it's mostly concerned with the, uh, the beginning of the affair and the end of the affair and uh, the um, yeah. cold feet at the end. Yeah, that was great. And also, in, and that's another example of where you mentioned films and stuff. And you, there's an atmosphere of like the bar that's that they meet at. It's, it's like it has that atmosphere of, um, I don't know, I, I was trying to think of movies too, like not about affairs necessarily, but um, I was thinking of the movie, I think, Leaving Las Vegas and stuff like that, you know, sort of bar flies and that sort of thing. So yeah, you do a great job of painting an atmosphere. Um, so in both this story and a beach in Corfu uh, seem to deal with the difference between romance and reality. In both cases, a romantic view leads the characters to some questionable relationships. Uh, yeah, so, um, and I talk about the main character here is influenced by films about affairs with Betty Davis and Deborah uh, Carr, for example. Oh, <laughs> this is a fun question. Do you think this happens in real life? Our choices are sometimes determined by influences in art and literature. I, I like this. I have these questions that are like placeholders, but hopefully they'll lead somewhere. But I, still, anyway, it's fun to talk about them anyway. So. No, I think that's a very, very cool, cool question. I think romanticism, <laughs> for sure, uh, is, you know, fueled in this stories by movies and Beach and Corfu by poetry and drama. People are capable of magical thinking. And yes. I think that's particularly so in romantic relationships. And uh, the popular culture that we surround ourselves with can uh, fuel this and, and reinforce our thinking and sort of build, build on it. Uh, you know, I think probably both of my young women characters take it maybe to a bit, bit more of a, an extreme than many yeah. would, but, uh, but I think that it's uh, sort of consistent with uh, the weight that popular culture can, can, can put on us. And, um, you know, I could go on and on about uh, the happily ever after tropes that uh, young women are fed and that uh, oh, yeah. you know are really distorting for their lives or can be and uh, about uh, you know warped body images that are that are put forward as uh, as ideals but I think that uh, yeah we we inhale our popular culture and, and I think it uh, it it shapes uh, shapes young people certainly to a, to a large part and probably probably everybody throughout, throughout yeah. their lives to a certain extent. And there's, yeah, there's a kind of a hero worship thing that happens as well. That I, I think that appears more in a beach in Corfu. So we'll, we'll, we'll get to that. Now. now, speaking of accidentally of Disney, because we talk about uh, warp body images and different things from that. Uh, so the next song that came up is Let It Go. But, uh, and this one is Idina Menzel's version. And she performed it in the film Frozen as Queen Ilsa. Now, I did not put Baby Shark on the, on <laughs> Thank the you. Uh, Thank you. mention it. But I, yeah, that, that gets on my mind too. So this this appears in the story, a uh, long-term lease. And the quote is, after multiple repeats of Baby Shark and the Frozen soundtrack, the battery on Hannah's leapfrog tablet dies, which is hilarious. Can you discuss the context uh, of the story? 
yeah, at this point in the story, the characters are leaving behind the world of electronic connection they, as they drive up to a remote cabin. They've lost the CBC signal, there's no cell reception, and the kids' music has just died out. So in the story, there's two couples and their children, uh, Gabe and Peg, whose relationship is very shaky indeed. Uh, they've been separated for much of the summer and things have unspooled in each of their lives. Uh, and uh, so that plays out a bit in the story. And then the other couple is Sharon and Jamie, who are somewhat unwilling observers of the other's dramas. They're uh, dealing with stresses in their own lives that are more understated, but, uh, but I wanted to, to make sure that it, they weren't just um, you know, having a ringside seat to the, to the meltdown of their relationship. <laughs> Right. Yeah. In, in this story, you've got multiple points of view. This is this is the only one actually where there are where there are like sometimes there are two points of view in other stories, but uh, this one has multiple. So um, so and you have a few stories in first, and many are in third limited. You even have a couple in second. Uh, so that was you characters. Why did you choose to have multiple characters uh, points of view for this story? Well, this story was one that I had. You know, I've never. I've never written in omniscient third point, third person uh, point of view, and I and the the early drafts of that I I tried to do that. I want I wanted to see things in a faceted way through through the you know the the way the different characters reacted to each other, and the way the stories came out. So my omniscient uh, third point of view, third person point of view, uh, got kind of. Uh, <laughs> critical reactions from my, from my workshop groups. They it talked usually about the, does. Yeah. The shifting points of view and that it, you know, that it wasn't working at all. So I abandoned that approach, but I still wanted to keep this, uh, this, this faceted um, look. So I decided to rejig it and kind of have the characters take turns being, uh, being third person, but, but the focus of the, of the piece. And um, yeah, so I played with that for quite a while in a variety of different ways, mixing it up, sort of having short snippets of uh, first person, yeah. then, then narrative, and then, and then sort of jumbling it around. Uh, and this was another story where Stephanie uh, at uh, Porcupine's Quill was, uh, was really helpful to me in, in, in uh, sort of steering me in a way that uh, I was able to tell the story in the way I wanted to, but that was more effective than any of my, my earlier versions. Um, so I'm grateful to her for that. Yeah, I like I liked, I really liked it because what happened was um, the way you told it, each of the different characters revealed a little bit more each time. So it was kind of accumulative, but from each one's perspective. And I thought, I actually thought this would make a great film. I thought it could be a really interesting movie to do that. I could see like a set in also in cottage country as well. I could see, I could see it, it was, it was very easy to, for me to, I, I've been in that um, places like that. So, but yeah, I, th I thought it would be a good film as well. And yeah, later on, we'll talk about running through green, which has the first, you know, it's in the second person from the point of view of a male character, which was that there are two stories in the second person. And uh, yeah, I, I wanted to say about the omniscient point of view, I, when I was writing erotic fiction, I was always trying that on for size and nobody, nobody likes, nobody likes a full omniscient. Uh, um, but uh, I think about uh, Michelle Faber, whose, whose book, The Crimson Petal in the White is, yeah. is actually, I love that. And I love, cause he actually addresses the reader directly in the story and it's fantastic the way he does it. So I've played with that quite a lot actually in, in, and uh, sort of, and say, you know, have these sort of almost 19th century sort of uh, trying to play with that. So 
I love that point of view for that reason. But yeah, it's, it's a flawed perspective for a lot of reasons, but uh, yeah. still fun. It was a fun thing to, um, to see. So yeah, long-term lease. The next one I have is, um, is Fire, which is um, by Mikhail um, uh, Dana from the soundtrack for The Adjuster, which was a film directed by Atom Egoyan. And this is for the, the, um, the um, story adjustment. Now you don't, you don't mention, um, yeah, here's, here's, uh, here's the little quotes I have from that. Uh, so this is me picking up, I picked this, this music myself. You didn't have the same thing. One movie in particular left an impression on many blanket draped shoulders, a Canadian director. She can't think of his name. She watched it when she was still an undergrad in her film studies class. That beguiling adjuster, will he come for her? His arm heavy around her, his grip tight, smoke in her hair, her rumpled mismatched clothes, somehow a turn on for him. So he'd throw her on a bed in that motel, cover her mouth with his, fuck her until the shaking stopped. And then later on, Egoyan, right, that's the director's name. There's just a trailer and a few scenes, fire sex. She'd forgotten the wife's job as a movie censor. Okay, this was great. This was a really interesting story. What what a what a it's so much uh, of a of a mood in this story. I love it. So, what's the context for this one? Okay, well, this this bit is near near the beginning of the story. The narrator's apartment building has caught fire. She's just been evacuated and standing across the street watching it burn with a blanket around her shoulders that uh, some volunteers have tossed around her and her dog in her arms. Uh, she's in a you know, shock, obviously, a disassociated state, and her mind goes to various fire touchstones in her life. Uh, the Egoyan the movie, The Adjuster, is one that comes early on, but then she also casts back to other fires that ended uh, the lives of people she knew. And so their so they're, they're memory is sort of woven through in her immediate, uh, immediate situation. And this story, it, well, it takes place uh, partly in Ottawa. Well, this starts in, in Ottawa anyway, the, which is, there's a couple of stories where Ottawa is mentioned in interesting ways, I find that we'll, we'll perhaps get to that later. Okay, and what I see here, especially is a full range of the senses, it, and it's something that I think is a hallmark, of, too, of your poetry. You're, you're very good at covering all the senses. Is there a way to learn how to write the senses? And do you have any tips to offer to writers? I always struggle with this myself. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, I was um, surprised and, uh, you know, grateful that you that you saw that in the writing. It's not something that I, I mean, there are, I do sometimes do exercises where I want to make sure that I've got all the senses in, in a piece of free writing so I can, can do that. So maybe that's, that's one, mm-hmm. one tip, just kind of, uh, yeah, I mean, I do a lot of free writing and that's where most of my poetry starts. I, even some, even some bits of the, of, of fiction will start with free writing. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I, I think I just try and sink into the experience as best I can and uh, try and pay attention to the sensations that uh, I think, you know, close my eyes probably because to, to, vision is the dominant sense and tends to take yeah. over if you, if you let it. So just kind of try and sink, sink into it and see what you can uh let's come to the surface and 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 go with that uh draw in situations that i've been in and extrapolate to where i've put my characters or things that i've i've heard about and filter it through uh through my imagination so just kind of trying to be yeah close your eyes <laughs> free write and, <laughs> and hard to hard to free write with your eyes closed but uh 
but the two two ideas to just kind of do, do it and let let yourself um, fully imagine where where you are. I tend to be really in my head a lot. Like a lot, I, I've noticed it. Like um, sometimes the critiques I've had is sometimes how much it is I'm in my head. Like. It's really hard for me. Even when I'm trying to remember the five senses, I have trouble. I always forget a, one of them. Like, I'm like, okay, there's taste. And then I go through them and there's one missing. And I, I try to figure it out. I'm like, I, sometimes I have to look it up because I don't know. Now, it's interesting you talk about free writing. When you, when you do that, um, do you start with any kind of an image or do you just kind of say, oh, I'm going to write for 10 minutes or how do you? Um... Uh, no, I don't ever, you know, well, I haven't very successfully say I'm going to write for 10 minutes for, for years yeah. and years. Uh, well, our, um, for poetry, the, we always at uh, Ruby Tuesday group uh, start with, with a prompt of some kind. So sometimes some people will bring a, you know, a fairly elaborate exercise uh, or sometimes it's just, we'll bring two or three poems that seem to, coalesce around a certain notion and uh, invite us to respond to that element of the poems or to something else in the poems or to anything else. So, um, yeah, so I've gone from, you know, uh, a line in a poem to writing about my personal situation the day that I heard about the Polytechnic massacre, which I never... Right thought to sit down and write about and another poem ended up about being the time I was stood up on Christmas Eve that came from a line mm-hmm. um a Sugoyat line about about a father so so I mean it's sort of like the the totally lateral direction that that something can take me in and then and then for fiction not so much in the stories although I guess a fair bit in um uh, in Beach on Corfu, there are bits that um, scenes that came from uh, Sarah Selecki uh, has daily prompts that uh, that you can do. So, right. so one time I was you know, my ten minute morning writing was writing on a on a prompt that uh, that came from from that source. So uh, quite a bit quite a bit of tower um, came from those, um, and uh, yeah, definitely definitely bits in. Um, in that story, can't think of any any place else that I that I that I use any of the other stories that that benefited from that, but uh, but definitely there. For this this novel, which I might as well name since I I, I keep talking about it. It's, it's it exists in about three thousand, maybe six thousand words at this point, written one summer so far. But the Nightmare Dolls in Perfect Reunion, which I've talked to you about before yeah, too. Yeah. I, sometimes I've done a free writing exercises where I just write in the in the voice of the character mm-hmm. so i'll just i'll start as if it's free writing except for it's in their voice so it's whatever they're sort of on their mind and whatever i find that quite fun to do and yeah um i can play so much i love characters i'm not so keen on plot it's my issue with plot is and i noticed um one thing i noticed is that when i was writing an outline for for this novel is um um, that I and I did it too when I was doing a, the previous the first novel I, r- I wrote which was um, through National Novel Writing Month um, so it was a little easier because I just put everything in the book but um, is that in an outline in order to move from one scene to the next I have a tendency to have something bad happen every chapter so it's like it becomes like a kind of a soap opera almost yeah. so it's like oh no I don't know so that's another issue I'm struggling with are you would you um I mean you've written your novella 
and you've got the short stories. What about a, a larger novel? Is it something that interests you to um, write about? For years, I said I would never consider writing a novel, but I seem to yeah. have started one. <laughs> I, I uh, have, um, yeah, I have, I have a, um, I did National Novel Writing Month, and I didn't write anything of the plot that I had sort of sketched out, but I wrote a lot of backstory for the characters. So I have, didn't make the 50,000 words that's the, the target for NaNoWriMo, but I got about halfway yeah. there. Um, so yeah, so that's kind of coming up on the agenda. It's, it, it again is um, two, uh, two female characters, a mother and a daughter, and uh, I have you know, a way I want to, I think I know where, where, where it's going anyway, so we'll see. Yeah, I, I mean, I, lo I love reading novels so much, and my, I love short fiction as well. I'm, I'm both, I love so many different types of writing, and, but my, my issue with writing it is just this. It just feels very massive to me. National Novel Writing Month was good because the advice was just put everything you experience into the work. So I went off to Toronto by train, so that went in there. Of course, things changed. You know, so yeah, I mean, that was helpful, but I haven't done it again because I can't commit to that kind of time. It wasn't actually long. Like I, I can write because I write like I talk, <laughs> which is a lot. <laughs> I can write like 5,000 words in a morning. Like mm -hmm. I'm just like, you know, I write and of course there's full of typos and what have you. But if I just yeah. go and say, don't stop, don't research, just write, I can write a lot. But a lot of it's garbage. Like I, do, I so I wrote that in 2004 and then it took me 10 years to edit it to make the dialogue not stupid and horrible. So, you know, and, and then I self-published it. But um, yeah, I, and then I think four people bought it on Amazon <laughs> or something like that. But uh, yeah, so, okay, well next, let's go on to the next. Now, the next song is Love Minus Zero No Limit, Bob Dylan from Bring It All Back Home 1965. And it's not one that you mentioned in the story, which is a beach in Corfu. And here's the um, quote. Liz wound her way through the maze of rooms, looking for Mark or any familiar face. In the living room, silent movies flickered on the walls. Bob Dylan's voice punctuated the perils of Pauline and the antics of Laurel and Hardy. Sheets of plastic covered the kitchen floor where people were dipping their hands in paint and making designs on paper taped to the walls. That's great. So uh, what's uh, the context of this uh, story? Uh, well, this uh, this scene is in a party that's based on uh, based on parties I went to in back back in the day. Um, my main character is a high school girl who's moved to a new city where she becomes part of a social circle after having been bullied in her old town. Uh, she makes a good friend, Carly, and they bond over poetry and drama. Um, yeah has a huge crush on one of the leaders of the drama group they join and he encourages that and it turns into an obsession and her first real heartbreak. Yeah this this story really got me because I don't know I mean I could really relate to this although I never I didn't read a lot of uh, poetry um, as a um, as a kid, uh, not anything modern anyway so I chose Love Minus Zero No Limit. First of all it's my favorite Bob Dylan song sort of almost tied with Tangled Up in Blue, but mm. also because of, it sort of echoes her intensity and possibly, intense, possibly fleeting devotion. She's true like ice, like fire, both very powerful, but they don't necessarily last. And also people talk of situations, read books, repeat quotations, draw conclusions on the wall. It sort of went with it for me. So uh, she becomes more and more convinced that she's in love with Mark and she ends up cutting herself, her wrist with a blade from the bathroom where the party was held. I was upset by this, but in a good way. 
I wasn't expecting it, even though you foreshadowed with Elizabeth's love of the romantics, particularly Lord Byron, who Carly pointed out had been mad, bad, and dangerous to know, which is great. Uh, so it's a very powerful scene where she cuts her wrist. How did the decision to have her do this occur? And why do you think it's important to write such a scene in this story and in general to include in fiction? Um, well, I always knew that the story was going to include a suicide attempt. Um, it was important because of the intensity of Liz's crush and her obsession. Uh, I wasn't yeah. exactly sure what, what she was going to do. And I sort of settled, settled on uh, cutting, cutting her wrists as both, both as something that I think comes to mind for young people. Uh, and also because, although it wasn't sort of, no, or at least I didn't know about it in my era, cutting with the intention to cut and not to, not to kill is, is uh, part of, uh, you know, one of the yeah. uh, hazards of uh, particularly young women have, have these days. Um, I layered in her romantici romanticization of suicide. Um, Percy, Percy uh, Shelley's first wife's uh, suicide is mentioned and also Sylvia Platt's. Yeah. And she sees that as the ultimate romantic symbol, a life of painful love transcended by pure martyrdom uh, rather than the tragedy that it was. Um, when I was that age, I knew a number of kids who, who attempted suicide, and I'm sure things have not changed very much at all. In fact, I know they haven't. So um, I think that that's reality. So it's important to, to include it, which is why I wanted it. Um, I wanted the end of the story to be somewhat ambiguous, though. What lessons uh, Liz has taken from her experience and whether she's going on to be more empowered or if she's just looking for subtler ways to self-destruct as she goes back mm -hmm. into the party or, or maybe, maybe it's both, you know, but I did want to leave, leave the ending somewhat, somewhat open-ended for her. Well, it's a very powerful story. And it also, what it made me think of too, is the way we, um, a society sort of um, lifts up like the kind of the male genius and empowers the young, even, like he, he's young, but he's still, people really look up to this Mark guy and he's, he's just like, you know, there's nothing to look up to him for, you know what I mean? Like, but that, that's what happens, right? You know, this sort of, um, I don't know, well-read, I can't remember much about his character at this point. He wasn't a major part of the story, which is good, but he was her, you know, she, she imbued him with Byron and all this. And, and this is what happens a lot of the time. So I thought it was, Again, a lot of these stories, especially when you write about uh, young women, I, I, I really relate to how you portray And the same with, with Tower as well. So it's quite good. Um, the next song that, come, that, I, that came up on the playlist is Crystal by Stevie Nicks. And um, the, the, I guess the uh, Fleetwood Mac um, album had, her, had Lindsay Buckingham as the lead. But, uh, but uh, on the soundtrack from Practical Magic, she sings the lead and she wrote the song. So um, I chose it because Shard refers to crystal and has imagery of ice and broken glass throughout. So the ring of crystal resounds inside me is a quote. And there's also a mention of Sandra Bullock movies on Netflix and Practical Magic is one of those films. Uh, not that I know this stuff, I have to Google. So don't, <laughs> I have no memory for anything. Okay. You also mentioned magic in reference to the main character wanting an explanation about the blood test procedure. We'll go over the context. But you say, I know that the magic goes deeper than that. And perhaps there's a certain echo from other stories of women and friendship and some magical practices. Can you talk about the story? Yeah, this, you know, the story, I guess in a way is as close as I can get to, uh, to a ghost story. I have one speculative 
fiction yeah. story in the in the collection and and one that you know draws a lot on on storytelling so I wanted something a little bit ghostly uh, but yeah. in practical terms the story talks about uh, this woman who is waiting for a diagnosis of some illness of the biliary system uh, so liver gallbladder etc she's not understanding why there's such uncertainty in in the doctors and she's not really knowing the right questions to ask so yeah. she's she's floundering she's she's suffering and, and while this is going on uh, she's haunted by dreams of somewhat menacing twin girls who appear to be showing up as apparitions in real life. And her devices are also going wonky and maybe are, maybe are a bit haunted. Yeah. I love how twins are often used for ghostly and sort of supernatural stories. It's interesting. I wonder what it would be like to be a twin. And like, wonder, like, are you, are you in a, used to this sort of comparison? I love how you link pain to the crystal and shards of ice. It's an interesting image. You use the same, well, similar type of imagery for pain in Fairy Tale for Survivors, a story about a woman with throat cancer, I think. Um, so in that, you see a tearing, sundering ice wall broke loose from the shore and waiting for the pain to dissolve. I had a sensation of sparse snowflakes dropping. So um, that's it, yeah. And the dreams of the two girls felt like a kind of a foreshadowing perhaps of death. It worked very well. Are you someone who keeps a dream journal? I wish. I try. <laughs> I have uh, I have a notebook and a pen by my bedside, and I wake up, you know, in sort of that that uh, liminal state. I, I wake up and I have the dream is clear, and I'm going to reach for the pen and and write it down. But by the time I manage to actually do it, I, most of it is dissolved. Um, so I, you know, I, the dreams. I am able to capture come in small scraps and they're frequently illegible <laughs> in my yeah. handwriting. But uh, so, so I haven't, you know, I've got, got this little book with, with, with uh, note, some notes in it that I haven't really consciously done much with, but I do think that uh, dreaming images definitely find my way into, into my poetry for sure. And probably in, in the, in the fiction as well. Um, you know, I think I, imagined her dream rather than having the dream but but it's sort of you know it, it it feels like a familiar dream that I might have had in some ways. Sometimes I find what stays with me in a dream is not the content but more the mood mm -hmm. and I can I can capture that somehow um, in a piece of writing but not the actual I can never unless it's really specific like I once had a dream and woke up laughing my head off because the dream ended in a punchline so it's like you know <laughs> Okay, I remember that dream. I have a couple of dreams like that, but mostly I forget my dreams almost as soon as they happen, unless there's something really like it. But it's mostly the, for me, it's mostly the feeling of the dream. Like if I if I felt scared, had a kind of a ghostly feel or something, or or anger or upset, that's the thing that sticks with me, and I can take that into a piece of writing. But mm -hmm. yeah, my my I would be my stuff is illegible even when I'm awake, totally awake. <laughs> so no, that wouldn't work. I, um, so I haven't had to wait for a diagnosis in the same way as the character, but a lot of what you wrote about her feelings of pain and her observations about her experiences ran true for me, such as normal works only until you discover the ground beneath you is undetermined and can fall at any moment. I know that feeling very well myself. And her frustration with her spouse who tries to comfort her or her search in the library from medical texts to texts on mythology. I really related to that. And I think a lot of women will relate to these moments. And we, we talked about this, but we... We, um, what, I, what I've got now is why do you think it's important to write about struggle and particularly about women's struggles in um, writing? 
Well, because if we don't write about our struggles, then what, what's the point of writing, I guess, at some point? I mean, it, it, it's, it's a part of, part of everybody's life, and I think we have to, to get to it uh, and um, you know, maybe take a look at it, maybe just to allow the feeling to be, to be there and see if it resonates with, uh, with other people. And I think the thing about uh, women in pain is often it's minimized, like even in a health situation, when a woman goes to the doctor, it's often, well, it's just, it's just, or my favorite, it's, it's uh, just menopause or something, right? Or whatever it is, it tends to minimize. Yes, just this. But um, what, uh, we talked about this a little bit. I, I was thinking of a cup, I was trying to think of some books that, um, that, um, or some stories where um, pain, women's pain was mentioned. I couldn't think of anything fictional, but I, I came up with um, something I'm in an anthology called Against Death, 35 Essays on Living, which was edited by Ellie Crowley Gardner and came out a couple of years ago. And both last year, oh, I can't remember. Anyway, it touches on both grief and pain. So especially for instance, Susan Cormier's Once Upon a Holly Tree, for example. Also Teva Harrison's In Between Days, which is a, a memoir about living with cancer. Both were great, great books, but I couldn't myself think of any, I was trying to think of fiction that included um, some aspect of pain, but that's not how my, I don't know, that's not how the brain works, I think, to be able to recall. But did yeah. you, you had some examples in mind. I yeah, think. I mean, I, I couldn't really think of anything in fiction, but, um, you know, the, another another really good book that uh, blends uh, sort of memoir and, and poetry is Laurie Nielsen's Glenn's um, uh, um, Threading, Threading Loss. Um, right. Yeah. Um, and explorations in loss and poetry, and like like her more recent book about the Red River women, she's she's got uh, you know bits of prose uh, uh, interspersed with with poetry, and it's it's really quite a quite a wonderful book. Uh, but the other thing I was thinking of when you asked when you asked the question was um, fairy tales, which which I do mm -hmm. a lot going back to, and you know thinking about um, you know the original Little Mermaid um, walking in pain every step when she gives up her tail or, or you know, the, uh, the, the travails of, uh, you know, east of, the, uh, east of the wind, east of the sun, west of the moon, that's what it's called. And, you know, sort of uh, struggle after struggle after struggle to, to, to get to the goal. So, so, I mean, I think that there is, uh, there's a lot, a lot there in, in, um, uh, that's layered into into stories that we know maybe peripherally or maybe actually and and so so that that can be a source of of some uh, uh, fortitude if not comfort right well that's great actually fairy tales that's a really good uh, thing yeah I, I did a little googling and I found this link to something called 13 books about women's pain by Abby Norman. And, and the books are all, all nonfiction, but it was quite interesting what she wrote. And it made me think of, of your character going to the library and her searches. She writes, I've always looked to books to explain the world. And I've always needed to write things down to process my experience of and in it. When I got sick, I went to a library long before I went to a hospital. I needed more than something for the pain. I was looking for more than a diagnosis or a treatment plan. I was in search of humanity, which I had begun to feel illness was stripping from me. So I thought that was really, and it really related to that your character looking for books on mythology as well. I thought that yeah. was a really good insight as well. So um, like in many stories in the book, so Claims, Cold Air Return, for example, the protagonist is a woman who works. Here she tries to focus on her work while she's still in great pain. 
Now, neither one of us could think of any books about about <laughs> our stories about women working and 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 so I don't know if, if anyone's listening and they can think of uh, some fiction that specifically talks about um, um, women's work in their in their in their stories. That would be great because I, mean, I thought that was actually in my mind that was unusual that you you had that. Uh, did you think of any entries or any? Uh, I, I, I haven't come up yeah. with, you know, with sort of anything with, um, you know, sort of a white collar work. Um, yeah. But, um, you know, there's uh, Alice Monroe has her, her um, mother is uh, an antique uh, buyer and seller and oh yeah and uh, and she has the one story where the young girl is working in the in the chicken chicken factory before turkey factory before before christmas uh and uh Subang in her uh, how to pronounce knife is has characters who who are working in in um, factory jobs and that kind of thing so so i mean it, it is it is i mean it's yeah. part of her life so it uh, um yeah, it seems like um, so many um, TV shows and movies and things like that, that work is so peripheral to, to people's lives that I think it's, yeah. uh, you know, and it, but it, you know, they, the 40-hour um, weeks takes the, the biggest chunk of people's waking waking hours. So I think it's yeah. important to, to, to um, make more than passing reference to it. Yeah, and in your experience, you you've practiced law for many years, and you've also volunteered a lot. Can you talk about how you found balance in your work writing life? How did you make time for it, and what are some of the challenges? There's also motherhood as well. There's lots <laughs> going on. Yeah, yeah. For for many many years, when I was a lawyer in a big downtown firm, and particularly when I had uh, young kids at home, things were really um, imbalanced. Um, I did managed to keep the writing spark alive through scrappy journaling, very, you know, fairly sporadic. And I did a, a couple of uh, short writing workshops um, when I was there. And sort of my last act before going to law school was to do a fiction workshop um, at what was sort of the precursor to the Sage Hill program in Saskatchewan. It was the um, Saskatchewan Summer, Summer School of the Arts. Which, the location of which was actually an old TV sanatorium. <laughs> so it was interesting. Wow. Um, so, so, you know, I sort of, I fed myself, I nourished myself with that before I went to try and keep it going. Um, but I really didn't do very much writing at all through, through that, uh, sort of law school and the 12 years after that. So it was only when I moved to Ottawa, um, and I was really burnt out from practicing law. So I spent about a year at, um, with the kids at home before finding a job. And that was the time when I reconnected with writing, found my first uh, writing group. Um, and then when I did go back, I did some consulting work at first, which had, um, um, you know, legal writing and research, which had, had a fair bit of flexibility to it. And my last job at uh, a federal crown corporation, I was able to, um, after a couple of years, negotiate working less than full time. And yeah, that's very, very lucky because part-time uh, lawyer jobs are like hen's teeth. They, yeah. they expect you to be in the, in the meat grinder. So, yeah, certainly in the law firm, that was the case, but there was a bit more flexibility and I had really understanding um, bosses there. So that was, that was great. And then, um, you know, I've been volunteering. It was, uh, I just finished a few months ago, 10 and a half years um, on, on the board of ARC. And, uh, you know, for, as associate poetry editor, the last bit, but I was uh, president for a few years. So that, um, 
that was a big time commitment, but it also fed the poetry really well. And I learned so much from it, but it was, uh, you know, it, I think um, I wouldn't have been able to be as focused on my writing if I didn't, if I didn't have the, the experience of working, working at ARC. So um, yeah, it's a balancing act and I'm lucky now that theoretically I can do nothing but write, although I managed to find a lot of other things to fill my time. Yeah. I know it's it's amazing when you're asked that question. Oh, you have so much time. You must have plenty of time to write. I said, yeah, okay, sure. Sometimes <laughs> yeah. it happens. Okay, next we have, I, we're, we're going a little long, but I, I'm, I'm having such a good time. I don't feel like stopping. So <laughs> unless you have places to go, we can, we can keep going. So, but we're almost done, actually. I, the next song that came up was A Case of You, uh, Joni Mitchell from Blue 1971. And it appears in Running Through Green, although it's not mentioned. So you have, um, the quote is, the sweet high voice on the stereo sings about constancy in the North Star. So that's, um, so I chose, I, I figured a case of you was the song. That was, um, yeah, so making extrapolations there. Uh, can you give us the context and talk about uh, Running Through Green? Uh, sure, but the, just to, yeah, the, the reason that the, yeah. the, the quote is so oblique is that um, yeah. uh, I was, I, I think I had originally I, I know you couldn't quote the song exactly, no. but I think I had uh, said something This sings about uh, being constant and the Northern Star. And Stephanie said, no, that's probably even too close for copyright reasons. So, so just yeah. a little further aside. So, so yes, it is uh, a case of you and one of my very, very <laughs> favorite albums and, and whatnot. So, but anyway, the context, um, the, this, scene is the main character Jim's introduction to Eileen who becomes his love interest in the main thread of the story. Uh, they're both students in uh, 1970s Toronto and both come from away. Uh, Jim faces some debilitating anxiety as he tries to adapt to city life and he comes to see Eileen who may or may not be coping better as, uh, as a lifeline. Uh, they share things that are important to both of them, and um, but it's uncertain whether they're going to make anything or even stay in stay in the city. That's right. Yeah, I, I mean, it was it was a great story. You and this is as I mentioned, you told this one in the second person from a, a young male college student's point of view, and two tone, which opens the book, also is in the second person as well. What prompted the point of view decision for, for especially for running through green? Uh, for when, running through green, I had I had several reasons. Uh, one was that I wanted the perspective to be very much narrowed in on on Jim, a, clo a close perspective to him. Um, yeah. But first person in a male voice, I, I think I've done it before. Well, I did it before in, in Tower, but um, yeah. uh, I, it didn't feel quite right here. And second person felt closer than third person, although obviously you can always make third person quite close to, but just the feeling was that um, uh, second person would, would get, me, get me next to him. Um, an earlier title of the story was November Letter. And I had the conceit of imagining uh, a letter sent to Jim um, linked to an image I had in the story that, I, that eventually came out of him having written his address on an envelope uh, uh, that he stamped and gave to Eileen, which he slipped into a Sylvia Plath book on coincidentally the page with the poem letter in November. So that was just too wow. heavy coincidence for, uh, for the story to bear. So it hit the be great, 
And, uh, and then another earlier version um, ended with Jim possibly dying, which rarely works very well in first person. So. Yeah, really, I'm dead now. So yeah. I thought I'd tell you the story yeah. of my life. That's funny. I yeah, I, I, I just when you were talking about the letter, I just had the um, the song "Dear Eloise" on my mind by the Hollies. So that, that, that's a song that has a has a letter in it. An old an old song from like the I can still see my 45, my oh. album, and my little yellow uh, thing in the middle. But yeah, um, so uh, I love all the references to poetry in the story and the imagery of green. And, you know, I have synesthesia. So for me, the word anxiety is green. Eileen is also green. So I, I was really, I was wondering, do you have synesthesia at all that you know of? Or you no, no, I, I don't. And I don't, you know, and I'm pretty sure I don't. I mean, although my friend who has synesthesia says yeah. that we all do to a greater or lesser extent and just, you know, yeah. it's not, you know, it's more overt in people like you and, and Deb. That you know, she, she said. So think of, I forgot what the example you know, but she she gave you know said gave me a word and said, now what color do you think it is? And I had an instant answer. So she said, right. you do you do have it right. Um, so yeah, so so green is definitely anxiety for for Jim. Uh, green dreams came to me fairly early on in the drafts, and I and I worked with them as a way to develop, you know, so as anxiety uh, builds. So um, so yeah, that's. Uh, you know, I mean, it, it was there to start with, and then I, I, I in in revision, I, I uh, developed it a bit more. I pushed it more. That's great. Yeah, I mean, I love that story. Um, we didn't talk about uh, two tone or ever poppy, but they're also good stories. I think we we didn't talk uh, that much about um, rescue either. But there's there's so much material here. They're great. Um, is, do you have any readings coming up or anything else to add? Uh, nothing much to add. Um, in terms of readings, I've been talking with uh, Daniel Lockhart, who also has a short story collection uh, coming out with Porcupine's Quill very shortly. So he and I are, are likely going to do a joint launch, which will be um, in January at this point, uh, hopefully not too much later than that. And uh, for poetry, I've got uh, Simon Fraser uh, University Lunch Poems on February 17th. Reshed rolled from last May, now online, which means I don't get to travel to Vancouver, which is sad. <laughs> and uh, Lit Live in Hamilton is having me in October, <laughs> which seems okay. so far away. Who knows? Maybe that will maybe. even, we'll, we'll see. It might be possible. It'll be in maybe person. even in person, but uh, otherwise online. So that's, that's what I, you know, I do have to get, uh, get on the case of trying to line up a few more things, but I was lucky to have, have the opportunity to do this and the writer's festival. And uh, so, yeah. Yeah. Great, that's great. Well, I like to end always with a note of praise, which sometimes embarrasses my um, my guests. But here's here's what I have to say that's about seeking shade. <laughs> <laughs> seeking shade is a collection of compassionate stories that give readers a close-up view of characters, primarily women, and their struggles, frustrations, relationships, friendships, families, and health. I was especially drawn to the portraits of young women, Eileen, the young prairie poet and student, struggling to pay for school and remain in Toronto and running through green as seen through the eyes of a male narrator who is in love with her, Esty in World War II era uh, dance me and her wish not to be tied down in a marriage while she enjoys dancing with dashing flyboys and soldiers before they go off to war, Liz in a beach in Corfu, the th that thirst for romance so close to the surface and the vulnerability it causes, Helen and Claims, who has to navigate the casual racism of workmates. Also potent are the stories of Judith, a mother with young children trying to escape an abusive husband in the title story, Seeking Shade, 
Val, who escapes her boring marriage through the romanticization of her affair, the woman waiting for a diagnosis of her stomach pain and shards, the stories within stories and fairy tales of survivors of Hafni of Bosnia escaping violence in Bosnia only to be faced with Canada's discrimination, and Cecile, whose niece has been sent to live with her after her parents were killed in the earthquake in Haiti. I think many women will recognize themselves in these stories. So thank you, Francis, for being on the show for, and for the great book, to Charles for processing, to Jennifer Peterson for the theme song, and to all of you for listening and sharing the episode. And stay tuned. Speaking of music, we're going to have a special episode on the poetic elements of music at the end of the month, featuring amazing musician Subraj Singh. In the new year, we have so far Connor McDonald, Jennifer K. Dick, Razika Revola, Dominique Parisien, and Jennifer Mulligan. And that's only for starters. So um, that's it for the show. Thanks, everyone. Thank you for listening to The Small Machine Talks. The Small Machine Talks.